Now, this coming Wednesday, uh, we are celebrating, not we, my wife and I are celebrating our nine-year anniversary. There's a... <laughs> when Mark saw that picture during this week, he just burst out laughing. He's like, where's the beard? But anyway... Uh, yeah, nine years together, and you know, like every marriage, there's we've had our ups and downs. You know, some really good times, but there's also been uh, challenges. Uh, and one of those challenges has been is that both Holly and I come from different cultural backgrounds, right? I come from an Indian background; she comes from an Aussie background, born and bred here. Now, we always joked about when we were dating uh, about how different our families were. You know, the different ways that they approach things. Uh, but it didn't really hit home until we were married. So remember, I think it was like the second Saturday or so after we got back from our honeymoon uh, and I asked Holly, hey, what do you want to do for lunch? She said, oh, why don't you go make a sandwich? <laughs> I, thought she, I literally thought she was joking, right? I'm like, no, seriously, what are we going to do? What are we going to do for lunch? Because I'm used to having a nice hot meal cooked. Sandwiches, you send that, you know, with your kids to school for lunch. But when you're at home... You need a nice cooked meal. And that was the start of many conversations, when I say arguments, conversations that we had as we went forward, trying to figure out how we have all these cultural differences. You know, when we go on holidays, cousins are coming, uncles are coming, aunties are coming, everyone's all together there to have a good time. But now I understand that we need to have some family time, just Holly, I, and the kids, and that's a healthy marriage, and it's good. But I had to learn that as I went by or say when someone comes over, um, they can't just drop by unannounced. They have to call and you know, let, let, let us know that they're coming over. And it's okay not to have heaps of food when people come over. It's okay not, you don't have to have heaps of leftovers. That's debatable, but... But you know, we, uh, we've had to work through all these things. And what I realized was when I came into marriage, I had all these expectations of Holly. I wanted her to fit into this box that I thought, this is how life is done. You know, so often we can do that with God, right? We, we come to God with all these expectations about who God should be, what he should do for us, what his church should look like. And we try to fit God in this box into, how, into what we expect him to be like. And in our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus encounters, has three encounters with people who have these expectations of what he should be like, the long-awaited Messiah, the chosen one who has finally come, and they have these expectations of what he should be like. And we see that Jesus keeps crashing into the, crashing their expectations, doing things that they wouldn't have expected God would do. And the question for us as we work through, through these encounters is that we need to ask ourselves, are we trying to put God in a box? Are we trying to get God to live up to our expectations? Are our expectations getting in the way of us seeing what God is actually doing? So let's have a look at our first encounter, verses 1 to 8, when Jesus, with the Jesus and the paralytic. Now, throughout Matthew's gospel, right, we've seen that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's been doing some amazing things, healing people, casting out demons. We saw last week that you know, he could even control nature. Jesus is no ordinary man. And so what Jesus has been doing, it's been going around all town. People have heard that Jesus is someone special and he's doing amazing things. And we see in the chapter before this, right, that Jesus has healed a servant of a Roman centurion. That servant was also paralyzed. And look at what Jesus said. 
Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Jesus speaks and this man is healed. Now imagine being the friends of the paralytic man. Hearing this story, Jesus just spoke and this guy can now walk again. Wow, that's crazy. And that's the expectation they have when they bring their friend to Jesus. They want Jesus to do the same thing that he's done for the centurion's servant. But have a look at what Jesus says in verse 9. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the disappointment they felt? They've heard what Jesus can do, and now all he has to say is, your sins are forgiven. What's going on, Jesus? See, these men came with an expectation of what they wanted from Jesus. But Jesus wanted to show them what this man's real need was. See, like all of us in this room, this man was a sinner. Now, we know that Jesus does heal him at the end. We know that he does get up and walk. And that would have been great for him. He would have walked the rest of the days of his life, but only for a limited time. You know, he could have played whatever sport he wanted. He could have ran around with his kids if he had any. But, you know, eventually, this man would get old. Eventually, his knees would get sore. And eventually, this man will take his last breath and leave everything behind. And when he stands before God at the end of his life as a sinner, being able to walk, having legs that work, isn't going to save him. See, as much as this man wanted to walk, as much as his friends wanted him to walk, as much as they thought that's what this guy needed, Jesus wanted them to see what he needed most, to be made right with God, to have his sins forgiven. And you can see this crushed the expectations of these men, but it also crushed the expectations or clashed with the expectations of the teachers of the law, the Pharisees who were also there watching everything that Jesus was doing. Have a look at verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Now that's a serious charge. If you look back to the Old Testament, Testament for someone to be a blasphemer, to, to accuse them of that, was pretty much to sentence them to death. And that's why they eventually killed Jesus, because they, they claimed that he was a blasphemer. Now, it's easy, right, for us on this side of history to be like, why don't the Pharisees get it? Can't they clearly see who Jesus is? But put yourself in their shoes, right? They're teachers of the law. They know their Bibles really well. And they knew that only God could forgive. They knew that God had set up this huge system that involved a temple, that involved a sacrifice, that involved a priest. And now here's Jesus claiming he can forgive sin. No temple, no sacrifice, no priest. He's claiming to forgive sin, and therefore he's claiming to be God. Just think about it this way, right? Say if Nate and I, Nate was here playing guitar before, had an argument during the week. And on the way out, Nate had enough, and he just smacked me over the head with his guitar and just laid into me, and I was just on the floor here, hurt, right? Then I imagine Mark going up to Nate and said, Nate, look, I forgive you for what you've done to pray. As good as a person Mark is and as nice as he is, he has no authority to forgive Nate. I'm the one that's been wronged. I'm the one that's been hurt. Only I can forgive Nate. And that's what we see happening here by Jesus claiming to be 
claiming to forgive sins. He's claiming to be God because it's only God that we've sinned against. And Jesus is saying, well, I have the authority to forgive sin. So you can see why they were unhappy with him, right? But look at how Jesus responds in verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man went home, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. Any one of us here in this room can claim that we could forgive sin. It's just words. There's no way we can prove it. And so to prove that he does have the authority to forgive sin, Jesus then backs it up by showing that he can heal this man, that he can make this man walk again. What, what Matthew is trying to show us and, and what Jesus is showing us is that if Jesus can do something as big as forgiving sin, then making this man walk again is just a piece of cake. Jesus is proving that he has the authority to forgive sin and he's crashing the expectations of everyone in that room. You know, all of us here today, right, we all have needs that we want God to meet, needs that God cares about, needs that are, are weighing us down. It might be a broken relationship within your family, maybe with your spouse. Might be financial hardship, right? Especially with the rising interest rates, everyone anxi everyone's anxiety is also rising with that as well. You might just be, be being feeling stuck in life, not knowing what's next. Well, what do I do next? And our desire is that God will come and fix that problem right here, right now. You see, God wants us to know that as much as He does care about those problems, He wants us to realize what our greatest need is. It's to be made right with God, to have our sins forgiven. So you could have everything you want in this life. You could have the perfect relationship, live the most comfortable life, everything going your way. But when you stand before God on judgment day, none of that's going to save you. None of that is going to save you. Our greatest need is having our sins forgiven. And you know, we have an even greater sign than seeing a man get up and walk again. Because you know, when Jesus hung on that cross and when he died for our sins, you know how we know that that worked? Because as surely as Jesus walked out the grave, we can be sure that our sins are forgiven. The resurrection of Jesus stamped across history for everyone to see that what Jesus has done on the cross, dying for my sin, dying for your sin, what God did for us through him worked. It proves that he has the authority to forgive sin. And I wonder if you really feel that and if you really know that, that your greatest need isn't for God to fix your immediate need right now, but for you to be on right terms with him through Jesus. You know, one of the ways that we can know that we do trust in the authority of Jesus to forgive sin is by being able to share our sin with others. To go to someone else and say, hey, I'm struggling with this in my life. Because look at what James says. James 5, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. See, what, what James is showing us here is that when we truly believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, it takes away the shame that we feel off our sin. Because often we don't confess our sin to someone else. We don't share it with them 
because we feel that shame. And you know, I have experienced this myself and still at times do do it as well. I remember my first year at Bible college, I was struggling with sexual sin going into Bible college. And I just felt this shame of like, how can I be here learning about the Bible, one day going to teach the Bible and I'm struggling with this sin. And I just, I knew that Jesus had forgiven me. I knew that I wasn't condemned, but I was struggling with, with feeling this shame. And then by God's grace, I went and I shared it with one of uh, the elders in our previous church. And honestly, when I did that, I felt like this weight was taken off me. It was like, I knew that Jesus had forgiven me up there, but now I actually felt it. Because we know that only God can forgive our sins. But what James is saying here is that as a church, as brothers and sisters, God has given us the gift of sharing our sins with one another, confessing our sins with one another, knowing that only God can forgive our sin. But it reminds us that while we take sin seriously, because when you share your sin with someone, you feel the weight of your sin, it also reminds us that God treats grace even more seriously. It reminds us that we are forgiven. And if God is not going to shame you for your sin, no one else can. When you stand before God at the end of your life, no one is going to be able to put any shame on you because Jesus has paid for your sin once and for all. That's the power. That's the transformational power of the good news of Jesus. That's how you can know that you really trust in his authority to forgive sin. And you know someone who knew that? Matthew, who wrote this gospel. And that's our second encounter that we see here, right? Matthew was a tax collector. He was the scum of society. He was taking taxes from his own people, putting a little bit in his own pocket, and then giving it to the Roman government. You know, today it would sort of be like uh, the Ukra a Ukrainian taking tax from their own people and then giving it to the Russian government. Like they were the scum of society. No one liked them. And you know, if I was writing this gospel, I would have let, left that detail out. No one needs to know that. I'm just trying to tell people about Jesus. No one needs to know how bad I was. But think about why Matthew puts that detail in. Because he believed in the authority of Jesus to forgive sin. He knew that if Jesus has forgiven his sin, no one else can hold it against him. See, Matthew is an example of someone who thought that they, were, that they were way past forgiveness, that they would never be made right with God. But when he encounters Jesus, he knows that he has been forgiven. And so as someone who's believed in the authority of, believes in the authority of Jesus to forgive sin, what does he want to do? He wants to tell all his friends, all his friends who think that they have no hope, come and hear what this guy has to say. Come meet Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with his disciples. But again, look who's also watching, the Pharisees. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now again, I think the Pharisees, they're expressing what everyone else would be thinking. You see, the Pharisees, the Jewish people, they were accustomed to following God's law, keeping his instructions, and keeping themselves apart from people who were seen as sinners. They needed to be seen as different. And so the expectation is that if you're a good, godly person, you wouldn't hang out with sinners. You stay away from them. And again, they're, they're going back to the Old Testament scriptures, and they remember that you know not anyone could just enter the presence of God. There was a whole process in order to approach God. 
But see, what do we have here in Jesus? He's claiming to be God, and yet he's sitting, he's sitting with sinners. He should have been avoiding, avoiding them, but here he is feasting with them. And look at Jesus' response in verse 12. And hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what we see on display here is God's heart for sinners. And he quotes this part of the Old Testament from the the prophet Hosea. And the context of what's being said there is that God is saying to Israel is that, you know, on the outside, you guys do everything right. You follow the law. It looks like you're doing everything okay, but you forgot the meaning behind the law. It was mercy and love. God providing a way for his people to approach him. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you guys are just like Israel back then. You know your Bible really well. You're, you're, doing everything all, you're doing all the right things, but you've missed the point. You know, my heart can sometimes look more like a Pharisee's heart rather than the heart of God. I remember once uh, at our previous church, there was someone who became a Christian and they wanted to get baptized. And I was convinced that this person shouldn't get baptized, that he, he, shouldn't, um, he shouldn't even claim to be a Christian because I knew what he was like. I knew the things that he had done. And while the rest of the staff agreed that, no, we should go ahead with it, I was just adamant that we shouldn't. And I thought, how arrogant of me. How arrogant of me. Because I remember when I first became a Christian, when I walked into our lunchtime group at, at school, Sally Abood, who is Rob, one of our pastors, a wife, said to me, you are the last person I would have ever thought to walk in here. How arrogant of me to forget the grace that God has had on my life and me not being able to see what he's doing in this other person's life. So the expectations of the Pharisees, the expectations of this world, is that God doesn't want anything to do with sinners. But we see here what Jesus' heart is what God's heart is truly like through Jesus. And you know, the church, it's been called a hospital for sinners because all throughout the Bible, God has used broken people to achieve his purposes. Abraham was a liar. Moses murdered someone. David committed adultery. All sinners, none of them perfect, and yet God used them. Now, I know there's some of you here today, like Matthew, who think, but if you only knew what I've done, if you only knew the sin that I struggle with behind closed doors, then you'd understand that this doesn't work for me. But guess what? Jesus knows everything you do anyway. Nothing is hidden from him. And even knowing all of that, he still came to die for your past, present, and future sins so you can be made right with God. So that on judgment day, when you stand before God, you won't be an enemy, but that you will be on the right side of history. Don't let your expectations get in the way of seeing what God has come to do for you through Jesus. Listen to what he's saying through his word today. Come, I would love to to pray with you after our gathering here today. But come and know that there is forgiveness in Jesus. And for a lot of us here who, who are Christians, I wonder where your heart is at. Is it more like God's heart or is it more like the Pharisees? See, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has sat in judgment of someone else. 
How dedicated are you? How uh, intentional are you about going out and telling others about Jesus? Because, you know, a lot of the time we, we talk about mission. We come up with these great strategies about how we're going to tell people about Jesus. But there's a difference between talking about being on mission and actually being on mission. You know, think about it this way, right? My Isla, two years old today, if I told her, hey, Isla, I want you to go pack all your toys away. She's like, okay, Dad, I'm going to do it. So she calls up all her friends. They come over, and one of her friends brings a really good book on the best strategies on how to pack away their toys. And so they sit around discussing it, and they're like, look, we're going to start with the Barbie dolls first, and then we'll probably get to the Play-Doh later. And so they talk about it, and then Isla's like, you know what? We should pray about this. And so they start praying about the best way to pack away their toys. Then Isla comes to me, and she says, Dad, you know, we've had such an amazing time thinking through how we're going to pack away our, our toys. And if I said, Isla, did you actually pack away your toys? And she said, oh, no, no, we didn't get to that yet. You know, that's what it can be like on mission at times. When we talk about mission, we talk about it in Bible study. We preach it up here from the front. And I have no doubt that we want people to come and know Jesus. But so often we talk about it, we pray about it, but we don't actually do it. You know, our goal as a church is to see a thousand new disciples over the last 10 years. That's been our prayer. That's what we've been longing for God, uh, God to do. And praise God that over, over these years, he's, we've, we're halfway there, right? So many people have made a commitment to follow Jesus. But imagine this, right? Imagine if every one of us here today made the decision, made the commitment to intentionally pray and intentionally spend time with one person, just one person to tell them about Jesus and bringing them along to explaining Christianity. Just imagine what God, God, God would do because his heart is for sinners. He wants to see people saved. I think Steve would have to move explaining Christianity from in there and run it in here. We could fill this room. So let me challenge us as a church with that. Let's all make that commitment. Let's talk to one person about Jesus. Let's bring him along to explaining Christianity. And I reckon we'd reach that goal for a thousand people easily, easily. God wants to see sinners saved. And so we should be expectant for him to work in the lives of our friends, of our families. The good news of Jesus works and we need to believe that. But you know, so often again, our expectations get in the way of what God is actually doing, of us seeing what God is doing. And that's what we see in our third and our last encounter here. See, while Jesus is having this feast, celebrating someone who thought that they were beyond hope, now coming into a right relationship with God, others are confused. And notice, it's always the religious people that are confused. It's their expectations of what God should be like that keep getting in the way of seeing what God is doing through Jesus. Have a look at verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but you disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. See, John's disciples, the Pharisees, they fasted as a way to show repentance. They knew that they were sinners. They knew that Israel weren't in a good place. And so fasting was a way of sort of embodying that. And Jesus is saying that, and so they're, they're wondering, Jesus, why aren't you doing the same thing? Why aren't your disciples following, uh, following our ways? 
And Jesus is saying, well, you've missed the point. The one that you've been waiting for. You've been waiting for the Messiah, the chosen one, God's king to come and save your people, to save Israel. I'm finally here. Now's not a time to fast. Now's the time to celebrate. That's why we get the picture of a wedding. You know, if you've, if you've ever been to a wedding, right, you would be dumb to fast at a wedding. I'm actually in that position at the moment. I've just started this new challenge because you know my struggle with food, right? And so over for the next 75 days, it's like this challenge where I've got to be under a certain amount of calories. And I didn't realize it lands smack bang in the middle of my cousin's wedding. And so everyone's going to be eating good food, having a good time, and I'm going to be worrying about portion control. You don't fast at a wedding. You celebrate it. It's a good time. And Jesus is not against fasting. You know, he says that his disciples will fast in the future, and he's alluding to the fact that when he will be taken away uh, and hung on the cross. But he's saying right now, it's a time for celebration. God has come to save his people. See, the religious leaders of the time, they were blinded by the expectations. They were holding on to their old ways, and they're failing to see what God is doing right in front of them. And that's what these last verses in verse 16 and 17 mean. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So what Jesus is saying is that the old wineskin way of thinking was that Only God can forgive sins. And to do that, there needed to be a priest, there needed to be a temple, and there needed to be a sacrifice. But the new way of thinking, the new wine is Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that a new era has come. I'm the priest. I'm the temple. I'm the ultimate sacrifice. I'm about to head and give my life life for, for your sins. So Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. The old wineskin way of thinking was that if you're a godly person, you don't want to contaminate yourself with other sinners. The new wine wine answer is that while we're committed to being holy as God's people, while we're committed to not falling into sin, at the same time, we're to become all things to all people in in order that they might encounter Jesus and be saved as well. Don't let the expectations that that you have, just like these religious leaders, expectations that you have get in the way of what God is doing. And I wonder how that might look like for you. So we all have expectations about what we should be doing as a church. And some of those are good, some of them, you know, who knows. And there's always ways that we can be improving, right? There's always new things and good things that we can be doing. But we need to ask ourselves, is your expectation getting in the way of what God is doing right here, right now at MBM. Because what we see here in the passage is that Jesus wants to see the lost saved. He wants to see lives transformed through Jesus. And that's what we're on about here at MBM. Seeing lives transformed through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. But are your expectations, whether that's tradition or whatever it might be, getting in the way of you actually seeing what God is doing and not playing your part here. What about holding on to old ways? We all have a past, right? All of us once weren't following Jesus and now we're following Jesus. Some of us have come from uh, different religions, different worldviews, and there are habits that follow us into following Jesus. 
What old ways are you holding on to that are getting in the way of God using you to do what he wants to do through your life? See, Jesus didn't come to amalgamate our old life with our new life. He didn't come to amalgamate Judaism with Christianity. He's come to do something new. You know, so often we want God to be Lord of our lives. We want Jesus to be Lord of our lives, but we don't give him access to every part of our life. It's sort of like if you've gone on holidays and you've stayed at a holiday house, right? You have access to most of the rooms in the house, but there's some rooms that are locked because people keep their valuables there and their stuff there. And that's what we do, do with Jesus. We say, we want you to be Lord of our lives, but I'm going to lock this room and this room. They're mine. Following Jesus doesn't work like that. If we're going to follow Jesus, Jesus is saying to us, I'm going to come into that house. I'm going to kick down every door. That's what it means for him to be Lord of our lives. You know, if I kept trying to put Holly into a box, if I kept trying to load these expectations on, on her, rather than letting her be who she is, I don't think we would have made nine years. If so, and if we did, our marriage wouldn't be a healthy, happy marriage. She would be frustrated. I would be frustrated. And likewise, if we keep trying to put Jesus in a box, we keep putting our expectations on him, we're going to feel frustrated. We're going to fail to see what God is doing right in front of us. Jesus didn't come into this world to fit into our box, to meet our expectations. He's the son of God who came into this world to save sinners. So let's stop trying to fit him in our box and submit to him as Lord of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. You're a God who is beyond anything our minds can comprehend, and yet you come to us in Jesus, making yourself known to us so that we can have eternal life. And Lord, I'm sorry, and, and we are sorry, Lord, for when we have tried to put you in a box, for when we have placed all these expectations on you. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would show us those areas in our lives where we are refusing to let you be, Lord, that we would submit that to you, and that, Lord, you would be who you are in our lives, that we would submit to you as Lord over every part and not let our expectations get in the way of what you're doing and what you want to do through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.